0: This morning, we want to ask ourselves a question what is our identity? What is our identity? A professor at Oxford University did a study on the effects of Twitter, Facebook, and other social media on the identity. It says, with over 7, or 750 million people on Facebook and many more on other social media sites, we see a growing trend of an identity crisis. She's quoted by saying, we've created a generation obsessed with ourselves. We have shorter attention spans. We have a childlike desire for attention and feedback. If you've been on Facebook, when you post something, you get that gratification of a like or a comment or someone telling you how great everything is. And it starts to feed into this identity crisis within yourself. She believes the results of this social media increase has led to reduced concentration, a need for instant gratification, and poor verbal skills. Many people find their identity in social media, and they create this identity that's not really the reality of their own life. And so ask yourself the question this morning, what is your identity? What do you find your value in? If you were to tell, meet someone new you were to tell them about yourself, what things would you say? You would hopefully start with your name, right? And then you might start with what your occupation is, where you live, your family, all these different things about your identity. But what are you truly finding your identity in? Ask yourself these questions. How do you describe yourself to other people? What is your likes, your preferences, your dislikes? Whose opinion matters the most to you? How do you define success? What do you want to be remembered for when you've died and left the earth? What things would you want people to remember about you? And we start a new sermon series this morning on the book of Ephesians, which deals with the topic of our identity in Christ. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, We talked about this church as we studied the book of Acts, and it's an important city. It's a wealthy city. It's a city that was known for idolatry and witchcraft and all these different aspects there. But these were Christians who needed to understand their identity. And so then Paul writes Ephesians to help them find their identity in Christ. Now, Ephesians is a little bit more well-known or popular of a book than Habakkuk was. When I said Ephesians, you probably knew where to look for it. When I said Habakkuk, you were probably looking in the table of contents trying to figure out where Habakkuk was. We've all probably heard sermons from Ephesians at one point or another. But we want to look at the whole book and say, what is the message of Ephesians for our lives? So next week, we'll begin looking at the book, verse by verse. This morning, we want to look at the whole book, and talk about some of the different aspects of it. Most importantly, why should we study Ephesians? Why are we going to take the next several weeks and look at this book together? But before we look at those reasons, we first want to look at some of the background of the book. We're going to do a little crash course on Ephesians. We first want to talk about authorship. Now, in Ephesians 1, verse 1 It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We can assume from that that Ephesians was written by Paul. And I think that is who wrote Ephesians. There's many other people who would claim that it's someone else that was writing the book claiming to be Paul. And I want to take a step back because you've probably heard other people talk about this. Why do we spend so much time talking about who wrote the book? Why are there people who don't believe that Paul wrote the book, even though it says it was written by Paul? There's a couple reasons. Number one, because Ephesians says that it was written by Paul, if you can prove that it wasn't written by Paul, then you can doubt the authenticity of the Bible. You can say that the Bible has a lie in it. And if the Bible lies about Paul writing Ephesians, what other things aren't true about the Bible? Now, some people want to say that Ephesians has a different writing style or theology from his other letters. And I would just say this that each letter that Paul writes is written to a specific church. They had specific issues. If someone was going to write a letter to our church, they wouldn't write a letter, they wouldn't use an old letter written to a church of 5,000 people. And why is that? Because we don't have 5,000 people here. Because we're a smaller church. We have different people and we have different issues maybe than a church that is bigger would have. And so the book of Ephesians and the theology in the book of Ephesians reflects what was going on in that city. And so we can trust, I believe, that it was written by Paul. Secondly, we want to talk about the date. When was Ephesians written? I believe it was written sometime between 60 to 62 AD. This is when Paul was in prison. He had two different imprisonments. If you remember the book of Acts, he was once in prison in Caesarea for a couple years, and then he was later in prison in Rome. And so this happens sometime during those two imprisonments. This is a prison epistle. Who is the audience of Ephesians? It would be the church in Ephesus. If you remember our sermon series in Acts last spring, we looked at Paul going to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla had already beat him there and were starting this church, and he had to fix some issues there's was an issue of false teaching. Apollos had good intentions, but he didn't really understand who Jesus was in light of what Paul already knew about Christ, so he had to fix that. There was some witchcraft going on, and people ended up burning their sorcery books and their witchcraft books, so he had to deal with that. Then later on in chapter 19, there's a giant riot that happens because they're worshiping the god Artemis, and they're trying to attack the apostle Paul. So all these things make up some of the background of the city, and the church of Ephesus isn't just mentioned in the book of Acts, but it's also mentioned in First and Second Timothy, because that's where Timothy was located as Paul is writing to him. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 as one of the seven churches, and there's also a connection to John and his letters as well. So as far as cities go, it's one of the most referenced cities in the New Testament, The historical background of the city tells us things that we already know from Scripture, that it was a large city, that it was a somewhat wealthy city, that it was known for its pagan idolatry and its witchcraft. It was especially known for the Temple of Artemis or Diana, which was the center of pagan worship in the area. I lastly want to talk about some of the themes of the book of Ephesians. What are the different themes And ultimately, I think the message of Ephesians is about our identity in Christ. How because we've been saved, because we've been redeemed by God, we have a new identity. We have a new way that we look at ourselves. There's some other themes as well in the book of Ephesians. The church is talked about and heavily emphasized. Not only tells us about our identity as Christians individually, but it shows us the identity of our church as well. How we grow and transform in Christ is also emphasized in the book of Ephesians. There's different verses on the household and marriage and fathers and children. And so this leads us all to this idea. The message of Ephesians, I believe, is this, that our identity is in Christ, so we should live accordingly. As we're going to look at Ephesians, and the way it breaks up is that chapters 1 through 3 show us our identity in Christ And then chapters 4 through 6 show us how we should live because of our identity. I think the message is that because our identity is in Christ, we should live accordingly or we should live differently. And so with that being said, I want to look at three reasons why we should study the book of Ephesians together. And the first is that we have been redeemed. We should study Ephesians because we have been redeemed redeemed. We just sang a song about our identity in Christ. I am not my own. It talks about that he's redeemed us, that he's given us a new name, a new identity. And Ephesians shows us this truth. It shows us how we've been redeemed, how we've been saved in several different places in the book. And so for us to understand redemption, which means that we've been bought back, that we've been acquired by God, we need to look at some different truths about ourselves. First of all, we need to understand that we were dead in sin. Go to chapter 2 of Ephesians and look at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 give us one of the most clear under explanations of the gospel in the New Testament. They're very famous verses. If you're going to share the gospel with someone, you could tell an unbeliever everything they need to know about the gospel here in these verses. And it starts with this. It says in verse 1, "And you were dead in trespasses and sins." If you're going to talk to an unbeliever, that's not going to be the that's not going to be the truth that maybe makes them feel the best or that encourages them the most. I don't know if I'd encourage you to just walk up to someone on the street and say, "By the way, you were dead or you are dead currently." This is what Paul says after he gives chapter one. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now notice the past tense of that. You were dead. He believes that they're believers now. So what is he telling them? This is what your identity used to be. You used to be dead. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense to us since we're all living here, since none of us have physically died yet. But that death signifies our past way of living. We were dead. And when you're dead, you can't do anything. You can't move. You can't do any action on your own. And it says that we were dead in sin. Sin had taken ownership of our lives. It had held us captive. There was nothing we could do to please God on our own. And he doesn't just stop with that. In verse 2, he says, "...in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience." So not only were we dead, but the things that we did were sinful. We followed the course of this world. We followed Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. A quick story about that. I once rode with an older gentleman that went to my church who wouldn't listen to the radio because he knew from scripture that Satan was the prince of the power of the air. So he said anything that came through the radio waves was coming from the devil. So we didn't need to listen to any of it. We'll get to chapter two later. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about, but rather that Satan has a sort of dominion over the earth, that it's, been, that it's fallen because of sin and that he has this control over sinful humanity. In verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what Paul is showing the Ephesians is this is what you used to be. You were dead in sin, you followed the course of the world, the way the world lived, and you lived for your own desires, for your own flesh, your own way of living. Now, why is this truth important for us to remember? First of all, it humbles us a little bit. Even those of us who are saved at a young age, those of us saved at an older age, this is all true for you if you're a Christian. That without God, without the gospel, you were dead. That there's nothing you could do to please God. That you followed your own desires. And if God didn't intervene, you would have stayed dead. There's nothing any of us could do on our own to earn our salvation. So this gives us a sense of humility. Humility shows us that this is what we deserved. Secondly, Paul's going to tell the Ephesians that because you're Christians, you shouldn't live the way that you used to. You shouldn't go back to that sinful way of living. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a diet, or if you're like me, you've tried to be on a diet before. But if you've been on a diet for a long period of time, there comes a point where you're not used to eating the food that you used to eat if you've cut out carbs or fried food sometimes when you reintroduce that back into your meals it almost makes you sick because you're just not used to eating that much food i had a cousin that went to taiwan and over there obviously they have a probably healthier lifestyle of eating than we do and he said one of the things about taiwan was that the portions were much smaller than here in america so he said he went to mcdonald's when he came back and he couldn't finish his food. And he'd not even ordered that much food, but because they were so used to this new way of eating. And in the same way, we're Christians, but that doesn't mean we're free from sin in the sense that that doesn't mean we're never going to sin again. Now we are free from sin, but because we've been saved, we shouldn't live in this sinful lifestyle. So Paul wants us to understand that we were dead in sin. Secondly, that we have been made alive. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And this was one of the great truths about God. He's the only one that can bring something back to life. We see it over and over again in scripture. God raises people from the dead. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Elijah and Enoch just never died. They were taken to heaven. But we ultimately see it in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is God, yes. But we see in scripture that phrase, God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is a work of the Trinity. Jesus who died on the cross, God and the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. But Jesus isn't the only one made alive. We are made alive as well. We were dead in sin. God made us alive in Christ. All of Ephesians chapter 2 is a picture of the resurrection. If, we've, if you've noticed, if you've ever watched a baptism, many pastors, as they baptize someone, as they dunk them under, will say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life, as a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. And that's what Ephesians 2 is. It is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. So we were dead in our sins. We've been made alive in Christ. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ by grace. You have been saved. Now, he's going to talk more about the grace of God in verse eight and give a fuller explanation of that. So why is this phrase here in verse five? And I would say it's almost like Paul couldn't help but mentioning that. He wants that to be very close to the idea of being made alive. He's saying, don't forget that you've been saved By grace. He's going to give us a better explanation, a more fuller explanation later, but he wants us to understand that we've been saved by grace. This is part of our identity. Thirdly, that we have a Redeemer. We've been dead in sin, we're made alive in Christ. We have a Redeemer. Go to chapter 1, verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, we have a redeemer and his name is Jesus. He came to the world. He died for our sins. He rose again. He is the one who redeems us. This is important for us to understand about our identity. None of us could redeem ourselves. None of us could save ourselves from our sin. We needed someone to intercede for us. We needed someone to redeem us. And that is what Christ has done us. If you look later in chapter one at verse twenty, later on in the chapter, God or Paul is going to talk about Christ again in the resurrection. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and far above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one. To come, Christ redeemed us, he died for us, he rose again, he's been ascended to heaven, and now he's given authority over all things. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He has reconciled us. We need to understand if our identity is in Christ that he is the one that redeems us. We can't redeem ourselves. As I've talked about our identity being in Christ, that phrase, in Christ, is used 35 times in Ephesians. And it's used for a reason. It's to show us that the most important thing for us to understand about ourselves is that we're in Christ, that that is our new identity. We want to also see that we've been adopted. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is connected again to salvation. We're adopted, and in a couple of weeks as we look at this verse, we'll talk about what it meant to be adopted as a Roman citizen. But if you think about adoption, this child that a family is adopting is not their biological child, but what are they agreeing to in that adoption? They're saying that this child has the rights of my biological children, that when I pass away, they will get an equal share of what my children have. That even though they are not my own physical children, I'm going to treat them as such. I was telling Alicia yesterday, there seems to be a lot of people just that I know they're trying to adopt, whether friends or pastors, families, or different people that I see on Facebook. Now there was one that I was thinking of that I couldn't quite put my finger on who they were. I was watching a show and they were adopting someone. So I don't know them. That was all fake. But the picture of adoption is a beautiful truth that illustrates what God has done for us, that we are not deserving of being God's children, but nonetheless, he has adopted us as sons and daughters. We also want to see that we've been sealed. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. And him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is often forgotten about when we talk about our identity in Christ, but it is very important and it's key that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. God planned salvation. Christ was offered for salvation, died for our salvation. And through the work of the Spirit, we're sealed, guaranteeing that we will be saved, that we are saved, and that when we're in heaven, we will be recognized as God's children. There's nothing you could do to lose your salvation. No one can take it from you. You can't lose it yourself. You are guaranteed to be saved. Because of the seal of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says this. He says, if there was any possible way we could lose our salvation, we would. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were given one simple command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate. If we could lose our salvation in any possible way, we probably would figure it out because of our sinful past. We've been sealed by the Spirit. This is important for our identity because it lets us know we can be secure. We have a lot of things we can worry about and wonder about. But as far as our salvation goes, we can rest knowing that we're secure in Christ. We have no need to fear. If we're sealed by the Spirit, all the promises that are mentioned in Ephesians belong to us. What does it mean to be Sealed. It doesn't mean just to vacuum seal something, but it has this idea of an identity. They would seal letters with the king's seal. That showed someone that you were identified with something. As we studied Revelation in Thursday Bible study, there's the mark of the beast, which illustrates those who are belonging to the Antichrist, who have rejected God. But then there's also the mark of the spirit, those who God seals, and shows that they are his own. We also want to see that we have an eternal hope. Turn to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We've not only been adopted and redeemed and made alive and sealed, but we have an eternal future hope in Christ. Back in chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, He not only made us alive, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him, In the heavenly places. This shows us the full picture of the gospel. Christ died, rose again, and then ascends to heaven where he is seated. We were dead. We've been made alive. And then he raises us up with Christ and seats us in heaven, showing us that we have this eternal hope. As bad as life can get, as many trials as we'll go through, the different suffering that we'll face. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an eternal hope. It is going to get better. You will be in heaven one day with Christ. You will see him in all of his glory. And look at how Paul describes that. He's raised us up with him so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. What does that mean? We'll talk about it more in a couple weeks. But I would describe it as this. We all know now as Christians that we were sinners, but we continue to realize just how sinful we were without Christ. As you're a Christian, as you grow in Christ, you're hopefully realizing that God is holy and just and that before you were saved, you were sinful and that gap is far greater than maybe you ever imagined it to be. What Paul is saying here is that there will be a time in heaven in our glorified bodies where we truly understand the grace of God. We see Jesus and all that he is. We see God and his holiness, and we realize the grace that it took God to save us. Let me put it this way. I don't know if you've ever watched a home makeover show. They always show the house at the beginning in its worst possible condition. They leave laundry everywhere. Everything is just emphasized for how ugly it looks or how much it needs to be fixed and remodeled and then throughout the process you see them demoing things and taking things out and then at the end they always show you the new house and it's decorated and it looks nice and it's clean but they do a before and after to really try to emphasize the changes that they've made in that renovation project what we see here in this verse is that part of our eternal hope is we realize the grace of God that's been given to us in Christ. That's why in verse 8 of chapter 2 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Looking at that whole process, Paul says, How could any one of you think that you could be saved on your own? This is a gift of God. So as we study the book of Ephesians together, we need to understand our identity in Christ. That we've been saved, that we've been sanctified, that we've been adopted, sealed. We need to stop identifying ourselves by how the world sees us. We need to start identifying ourselves with how God defines us in his word. And this is what Ephesians is trying to show us. If you try to define yourself the way the world does, it will only leave you empty. It leads to anxiety, depression, hopelessness discontentment you can have everything the world would offer you and it would still leave you empty because of our identity in christ paul says in chapter 4 verse 1 i therefore prisoner of the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called because these things are true about us we should live differently we shouldn't live in the way that we used to live I'll put it this way, I've been subbing at the local middle school, we got at the beginning of the semester a list of all the football players that play football for 7th and 8th grade, and the coach said this, if you have to reprimand them or give them a log, which is like a punishment for them, not only will they run extra, but the whole team will run because of them. And he said at the bottom of the email, because they're football players for our team, we expect them to be the example. We expect them to live differently. And so as those football players would mess around in my class and as they would talk back, I would remind them that if I tell their coach that they've been messing around, not only will they run, but the whole team will run because of them. And wouldn't you know it, it didn't take them very long to realize that they needed to shape up in class because they did not want to be the ones responsible for making the entire football team run. In the same way, because of who we are in Christ, it should lead us to live differently. There are no commands given in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. There are over 30 commands given in chapters 4 through 6. This shows us how we live in Christ. And we'll look at it more in the coming weeks. But because we're in Christ, we should speak the truth in love. Forgive others. Imitate God. Walk in love. Make the best use of time. It transforms our household relationships. When we look at chapter 5, we'll see how husbands and wives interact with one another, how parents and children interact with one another, slaves and masters, all of these different relationships that we have. And then at the end of chapter 6, he tells us to put on the armor of God. We'll take much more time to explain all those things when we come to them. But it shows us this, that because we're Christians, We are called to live differently. We also want to see that we've not only been redeemed, but the church has been called to grow in Christ. We should study Ephesians because we've been called to grow. We're going to look at three different passages that talk about the church in Ephesians. First, look at chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Chapter 2 is an interesting chapter. I said that verses 1 through 10, I believe, is one of the most clear explanations of the gospel in Ephesians, in, in the New Testament. Then in, chap- in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he kind of repeats himself. It's almost like he's saying the same thing over again, but this time he's not focused on individual salvation, he's focused on the church more broadly speaking. He shows. How the Jews and Gentiles are combined into one body. So look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him you are being built together into the dwelling place of God. Paul's trying to show us not only our personal identity, but what our church is called to be. And here in Ephesians chapter two, we see that we're part of the household of God, which is built on Christ. It says the foundation is the apostles and prophets, but the cornerstone is Jesus. You can't have a house without that foundation. And Christ is the most important part of that foundation, the whole church rests on him. Now, what does it mean that it also has the apostles and prophets as the foundation? Well, we see from the book of Acts that as Christ ascends to heaven, the apostles were looked to for leadership and for guidance in the early church. The church is built on them. They would write the rest of the letters in the New Testament. And so we depend on those apostles who were called by Christ as the foundation for the church, but they're not here today. There aren't apostles that are around now, even though some people would call themselves apostles. You don't need to call me Apostle Lance because I'm not one. I'm just a pastor. So we don't have that foundation here alive with us, but we do have it in God's word. We have their example and we have their writings. In verse 21, it says, On this foundation, The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. I don't know about you. I've been at this church for a couple years now. I've never seen it grow on its own, the building structure wise. It stays the same. So Paul's not talking about the physical building, but he's talking about the spiritual body. And it's not just a numerical growth, but it's a spiritual growth that helps us become the temple of God. As we sang that song, one of the verses says, My body is a temple for the living God. Part of the purpose of the church is to help us grow in our relationship with God so that we can be his temple. We don't have a physical temple, but we spiritually are the temple of God. In verse 22, it says, In him you are being built together into a one place for God by the Spirit. So we see here that Christ founded the church, we're built on him, and then he's calling us to grow. We also see this in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. We want to see here that Christ not only founded the church, but he equips the church as well. Verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These are gifts given to the church. We talked about the apostles. We talked about the prophets, but also the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. They are given to the church, but notice it's not to do the work of the ministry. Now, I would tell people that I'm in ministry, yes, but it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We see here that Christ is giving the church the things that she needs to grow, to become more like Christ, to do the work of the ministry. It's something we're all called to do together. And then we see the goal. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head to Christ so paul talks about this growth that takes place in the church and notice, it's not really a numerical growth. It's not just about adding numbers to the church, but this is a spiritual growth—a growth in Christ. It leads you to being able to not being to not be carried about by false teaching. You're starting to recognize false teaching that is going on, and you're not deceived by it. Instead, you're able to speak the truth in love to grow up into. Christ, What is the mark of a healthy church? What shows that a church is truly growing? It's not just growing numerically, even though it should. We should want to grow that way. But it is also growing spiritually in maturity. And Christ equips the church to do this. We're a small church. We're an especially small church when there's COVID going through the church and not everyone is able to be here. But even as a small church, we can still grow. We may never gain more people or be a church that is just gushing with people out the door. But we can grow in Christ to be a spiritually mature church. We don't have to feel bad as a church of 20 to 30 people that were small. But as a church of 20 to 30 people, we should want to grow in Christ and be a healthy church that lives for him. And in this passage, we see that Christ gives us the means to grow. We're built on him. He gives us pastors and elders and evangelists to help us grow in Christ. This all comes from him. We should remember that he's not only founded the church and equipping the church, but that Christ loves the church as well. If you look at chapter 5, we see an illustration that Paul uses that is often applied to marriage. And I think it should be. That's what he's talking about. But the illustration is Christ and the church. Verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He's talking about how husbands and wives relate to one another, but the illustration is that of Christ and the church, the things that we already know are true. The church submits to Christ in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church submits to Christ, Christ loves the church. How do we know that Christ loves the church? He said because he gave himself up for her. Now I don't think do I think Christ only died for the church? No, I think in a way Christ's death applies to all people. He died for everyone. But who are the people that are actually saved? It is those in Christ church. As a church, a Sycamore Bible Church, we need to remember that we're loved by Christ. That he is our savior, that we're built on him, that he helps us grow, that he gave himself for us. Not only that, but that he's sanctifying us. He's changing us. He's transforming us into his image. Christ loved the church. And as we read and study the book of Ephesians over the next several weeks, I want us to not only apply it to ourselves, I want us to apply it to our church. If our identity as a church is in Christ, we should remember, first of all, that Christ owns our church. It's not my church. It's not necessarily your church. It is Christ's church. The road ends with him. If it's Christ's church, then we can trust that he will build his church. He says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are there churches that close? Yes. But the overall universal church will never die. It will remain. Christ is the head of the church. And so as a church, we submit ourselves to him And ask ourselves the question, what has He called us to do? I've heard people say in different churches before, I know what the Bible says, but I don't know if that's what God wants our church to do. Well, if God wrote it in His Word, that is what He has called us to do as a church. And we can trust His plan. God wants our church to grow. We hear that and we think, well, we're a small church. It's not just numerically, but it is also spiritually in maturity. We pray, yes, that God would grow us in number, but we ultimately pray and work towards growth in Christ. We lastly want to see that we should study Ephesians because God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be praised. We go back to chapter 1. We see that Ephesians begins with a doxology, a worship of God in the Trinity. It's a praise to God for what he has done. And all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here. First of all, we see God the Father is praised. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As he says, blessed be God, he begins with... The Father. What has God the Father done for us? We see in the Old Testament, God the Father is largely at work. He's largely emphasized. And Christ later would come in the New Testament, along with the Holy Spirit. But God the Father still works today. He, first of all, gives us spiritual blessings. All the spiritual blessings that are in Ephesians, and by the way, there's a lot of them. We talked about that in our first point, they come from God the Father. In verse four, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean that he chose us in him? Does that mean that we don't have free will? Does that mean that we don't have the opportunity that if we're chosen by God to be saved, there's nothing we can do about it? What I'm going to say about that is come back next week, because we'll talk about that in next week's sermon. For now, I will say this. And at the very least, we need to understand this passage to say that God has planned salvation from before time. I do believe that God has chosen us as Christians. I'll explain more about that next week. And as I preach this passage, I especially lean into that. I also think there's passages that talk about us believing and repenting. And it's very much from the side of human responsibility. And so it's almost a two-sided coin. But like I said, come back next week. And pray for me this week as I try to think about how I'll say those things. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world for a purpose that we should be holy and blameless in him. This is God's work. He has planned our salvation. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Part of his plan was that we would be adopted. I mentioned that I have several friends trying to adopt right now. It is a long process to go through the requirements, to go through the training, the house visits, selecting which child you're going to try to adopt. I know one family, they had over 50 children that they had said yes to before they were finally able to make it work with one child because of all the different requirements that they had to go through God planned out our adoption before time. He has made us sons and daughters for himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, is repeated Time and time again in chapter 1 to show us that God is worthy to be praised. We see, secondly, God the Son is praised as well. In verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. God the Father is to be praised for his plan of salvation. Christ the Son is to be praised because he accomplished salvation for us. It is one God in three persons, yes. But in salvation, they're doing different things. God the Father planned salvation. Christ accomplished salvation by coming to the earth. He was obedient to the will of God the Father. That's what's so unique about the gospel, as Philippians says. He was equal with God, yes, in the Trinity, but he humbled himself, coming to earth, being obedient to the point of death. We can praise Christ because he has redeemed us. In chapter 2, it says he is our peace. He has made peace with God through his death. Lastly, we can praise God, the Holy Spirit, for his work. We already mentioned this, but in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. He has sealed our salvation so that we can have this hope. God planned our salvation, yes. Christ died for our salvation, yes. But if it was not for the work of the Spirit, we would always be wondering Am I really saved? That sin that I committed that I know I shouldn't have, did it break fellowship with God? And there are people who believe that. There are people who go to churches who have said they've trusted Christ as Savior, but they still have that fear in the back of their head. Am I truly saved because of this sin? It's because of the sealing of the Spirit that we can say, yes, that if you've trusted Christ, if you've been redeemed, No one can take you from the Father's hand. No sin, no person, not even yourself. You are secure in him. Ephesians shows us that we should praise God for our salvation. It is not just a book about us. It is a book about God and what he's done for us. How do we understand our identity in Christ? It starts with understanding who Christ is. And that tells us everything we need to know about ourselves. As we close out our service this morning, we want to take some time and think about how can we be preparing for the coming weeks. How can we be thinking about Ephesians and praying and studying it? And first of all, I would encourage you to read Ephesians. It's a little bit longer than Habakkuk. It's a little bit meatier than Habakkuk is. But read Ephesians, read it a couple different times, maybe in different translations. Try to start understanding the book on your own. Secondly, think about your identity. What are the things that you put your identity in? Where, what areas do you need to change? Do you find your identity in Christ? And then lastly, pray. Pray that God would bless you, that he would encourage you. You would find your identity in him. Pray that us as a church, that we would be encouraged to find our identity in Christ as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it together. We pray that we would find our identity in you. You would help us to grow and be changed into your image each and every day. That through the book of Ephesians, not only our church but our individual lives would be transformed by what you're doing in us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.